On today's edition of Grape Encounters Radio, we will take you where no wine show has ever dared to go before. Here's a little taste of what's to come. There's no law. It doesn't exist. It's a bunch of snobby and pretentious people telling us what a wine has to be for us to like it. And I'm calling BS. I'm sorry, Sarah. I'm getting off my pedestal now. (laughs) I'm with you all the way on that one. I've never seen you rant like that. And now from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in the quaint, friendly, and historic town of Atascadero, California, it's time to enjoy an hour of the really good stuff on Grape Encounters Radio. Heck, we may even uncork a bottle or two of wine while we're at it. Here's David Wilson. Peel me a grape, crush me some ice, skin me a peach, save the fuzz for my pillow. All right, you've waited all week, and once again it is time for your Grape Encounter of the Week. You know, there's been something noticeably missing from Grape Encounters over the past, like, five or six weeks. Not completely missing, but mostly missing, our one and only Sarah Schneider, wine editor from Sunset Magazine. We took a little hiatus, not on purpose, but just because it sometimes is hard for Sarah and I to get into the studio together because Sarah's always off on one corporate jet or another flying to some exotic wine country, but we've got her in the studio today. It's about darn time. Are you through playing around, Sarah? <laughs> oh, I wish I were playing around the way you were describing it. <laughs> Sounded good, didn't it's, it, It's not that romantic, but it's really good to be back. Yeah, it's yeah. nice to have you back. We did a couple of best of Sarah's that I oh, thought were good. P- pretty terrific, but when I have to choose the best of Sarah, there's so much to choose from. Oh, that's sweet. Because they're all best. In Aww. fact, I think we're going to do a all Sarah all the time special. <laughs> sometime. <laughs> oh, anyway. dear. So mm. here we are again. You brought some wine and I brought some wine True. today, too. Don't we always? We, yeah, we're going to get we into that, that in a little bit. But today's topic is one that seems so pedestrian when I say it. It's going to seem so simple, so basic, so easy to answer. And I think it's going to be a real stumper. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Drum roll, please. What makes a wine good? Ah, Oh, wow. What do you think of that question? I think that is probably the hardest question of my whole career. Right there. Right there. You're just saying that. Well, no, I live that every day. I have to sit at my desk with a glass of wine or 10 at 10 in the morning and decide if they're good or not. Well, one of the things that I am always surprised by is how differently we judge wine than we judge anything else. You know, the basis of how we judge something. You know, if you walk out in the parking lot and there's 20 cars out there, it's pretty easy to come to a consensus as to which of the cars we like the best. (laughs) You know, you just look at them and wow. And then you get inside them and wow, and so on. Most consumer products are fairly cut and dry, but wine is sweet or dry. Well, (laughs) that's true. What an analogy that is. 
you think, so what if you went out to the curb and all of those cars were Fords, but they were different models of Fords? You wouldn't say one model is necessarily better than another. They might be different and all of them might be really good. Can you apply that to wine and, and line up 10 Pinot Noirs? And well, that's where it gets really super complicated. And that's why we're having this discussion. And the discussion is going to go on for the whole show. Normally we do your very special segment, Sipping with Sarah. But the whole show is going to be today about what makes a wine good. And I have an objective. When this is all over, I want to set listeners free. I want you to be able to take off your shackles. I want you to get rid of all your predispositions about wine. I want you to forget everything you've ever thought of where wine is concerned and just come along for the ride and be a part of the answer to the question, what makes a wine good? And it's your own answer, not anybody else's answer. Well, if it was that easy, then, well, that's then true. Then the show would be over. Yeah, we're, okay, well, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. Thanks very much to my special guest, Sarah Schneider. By the way, I do want to take a moment, Sarah, to kind of reintroduce you to part of our audience. If folks are on the West Coast, they are intimately familiar with Sunset Magazine, one of the most important lifestyle magazines in the world, really, and one of the two or three biggest in America, and a real icon where Lifestyle Magazines is concerned. We have a lot of listeners on the East Coast, Midwest, you know, all over the country. We have a lot of people tune in online all over the world. So while folks out West are going to be very familiar with you, maybe on the East, maybe not as much. I'm sure that's true. Although I'd like to think that by now, you know, because we have you on all the time, you know, right? But my beat is really the West Coast for the most part. Not too shabby when it comes to wine. Well, no, I mean, because that being your beat, you really are having to be responsible for talking about 95% of the wine that's consumed in America that's domestically produced. That's true. But, you know, as a magazine, we're not a wine geek magazine. No, not at all. That's why you're on the show. And I'm just one editor among travel editors and food editors and home and garden editors. Right. If you were a wine geek, we'd have to take you out and shoot you. Okay. (laughs) That's harsh. Well, I didn't mean shoot you. I meant like shoot you full of something, you know, wine. (laughs) There. Just regular wine. All right. So back to the question, what makes a wine good? And, you know, you made a very interesting point that you're a wine editor, not for wine geeks, although wine geek is hard enough to define as well. What is that? Yeah. But I believe this, that most people who drink wine consider themselves to be woefully inadequate where wine is concerned. They don't understand it in the same way that we might not understand how that engine works underneath the hood of your Toyota or your Tesla. Right. And does that matter? Well, where wine is concerned, it seems to. It seems to make people feel inadequate and they almost become wallflowers. They don't want to get into a conversation about the wine for fear that they might say something that somebody's going to perceive as being stupid, which is completely not the case. So you're saying for this consumer product, because it is, people feel like they have to actually know something before they can decide good or bad. And that's crazy when you think about it, because if you go back to the car analogy for a second, I can go three and four years without ever popping the hood of my car and looking underneath it to see what's down there. For all I know, there's a cage full of squirrels, <laughs> but uh, you know, hamsters rather, you know, it, I don't know. It, and it, it, doesn't ma- it doesn't matter to me because uh, gone are the days of us fixing our own cars. You know, yeah, cer- certainly there are some people that still do that, for, but for the most part, we don't. And so there's no reason to look under there. We just know that we like the way it handles. We like the way it purrs. 
We like the way it looks. And we accept the car for what it is. We either love it or we don't love it, you know? And there's one possible answer, whether a wine is good or bad. Do you love it or do you not like it? Well, I think that is the conclusion maybe that we're going to come to at the end of the show. But I think that there are obstacles that people are going to have to overcome to really be able to enjoy wine. And it's one of the things that I talk a lot of people out of trees, you know, who are absolutely terrified that they're not getting something. You know, they're not getting that when somebody says it tastes like blueberries and cassis or whatever, saddle leather or tobacco or barnyard or forest floor (laughs) or mushrooms or, you know, freshly cut garden hose. They think that because they're not getting that, they're not fully appreciating the wine. And I'm here to say it might just be the opposite. The fact that you're not obsessed with trying to figure out each one of those little tasting notes that we talk about so much in the wine business, you might be better off for that. See, I think that's a fascinating issue about wine. I taste with a lot of general drinkers, my colleagues here in the office at Sunset, for one, and then out in the field a lot too. And often someone will say to me, what is it that I'm getting here? There's some element and they're they're just racking their brain. It's what you're not getting. You, bozo. You say yes. <laughs> you say a word, a descriptor, and you know, I think that's jasmine or whatever. And they say, Yes, that's what it is. And they seem to actually appreciate the wine more. But don't you think I'm just throwing this out there, don't you think that just as many of the people who react in that way to you saying jasmine are just saying it because they don't want to feel like they're inadequate? I do think the power of suggestion is huge. You throw out a descriptor and you will find it. Ginormous. And I would agree with you at one level there that when people are just scrutinizing the fruit flavors and and whether it's a golden delicious apple or a Granny Smith, that they're kind of missing the point about the wine. You understand a wine much better if you step back from it and are just letting the textures and the brightness or the dullness just wash over. Okay, so like I said, we're going to give people a lot of freedom before this show is over. But before we jump into the next segment, I just want to leave you with a thought from one of our mutual friends, Wes Hagen, great winemaker, (laughs) great great wine educator, really well respected in the business. Wes says simply this, that wine should be a social lubricant to stimulate (laughs) conversation about everything except the wine. Even though all I do in my life is talk about wine, sometimes I think we talk too much about it so i agree hold that thought sarah and everybody else go refill your glasses make sure you turn up the radio so you can hear the commercials because those are really important keep us on the air and we'll be back with more grape encounters as we endeavor to answer the question what makes a wine good when wine lovers aren't talking about wine it usually means they're asleep your grape encounter with david wilson will continue right after this Every week, David has the good fortune of enjoying wine with some pretty amazing people. But few things can compare to spending some quality time sipping with Sarah. Sarah Schneider, that is. The beloved wine editor of Sunset Magazine. All right, so what does make a wine 
good? You know, in order to answer that question, along with my colleague Sarah Schneider from Sunset Magazine, I guess we probably, Sarah, have to start with asking the question, what's good? Ooh, can I flip that question around? What do you mean flip it around? I think it's a lot easier to say what makes a wine bad than what makes it good. Oh, no. That's a whole nother show, Sarah. Uh, well. Okay. Well, I, I, I guess we can go b- both ways, but but let's just talk about good for a second. Okay. Because good has a couple of different meanings. You know, good in my book, being a foodie and a wine drinker and somebody who just likes to consume stuff, good to me is delicious. Makes me happy. Puts a smile on my face. Makes me feel wonderful. I'm, I'm with you there. But, um, but good for other people doesn't mean that. And uh, I wanted to start with the notion of varietal correctness. Now, in a world where we have started to dispense with political correctness, started to, I mean, actually thrown it out the, you know, the 10th story window. Yeah. But, you know, maybe this idea of varietal correctness is something that we have to consider because, you know, it's a term that in our profession we hear a lot. I'm not sure that most people really know what that means, well, but I'm going to ask you to define varietal correctness because, you know, as somebody who runs one of the most prestigious wine competitions in the country, that varietal correctness is really important to a lot of people. It is important. And but, n- now you're getting... I'm not going to do a but yet, but okay. but I might later. You're getting to the things that people who are interested, really interested in wine, start learning. They put themselves in situations where they learn terms like varietal correctness. And, and that would be, let's say it's a Cabernet Sauvignon. It should have certain markers that that wine delivers from Bordeaux in France to Napa in California. Cabernet tends to have certain characteristics. And uh, uh, Okay. But who decided which of those characteristics are good and which are bad? Because, you know, that's all very – this is what really concerns me is that you hear people say, well, the wine is not varietally correct or, you know, it tastes more like a Merlot than a Cabernet or maybe it tastes like a Zinfandel or or whatever. And then suddenly for a lot of people, it's, oh, I don't like this wine. No, wait a second, Jack. Did you say you don't like the wine or did you say you didn't like the fact that it's not varietally correct? Well, so that's just a fabulous question. And when we're judging competitions, we're as professionals, kind of required to mark it down if the wine doesn't taste like the variety is, who, is who going out. Who required you to do that? I guess that is an industry standard. The, That's wa- a the good... wine gods or, you know, because because this is what's disturbing to me. Going back to the hamburger analogy in the first segment, you have this glass of wine. It's a Cabernet, let's say. It doesn't taste anything like a Cabernet. It is so much more delicious than any Cabernet that you've ever had in your entire life. So now are we going to mark it down for being extraordinary? Well, that is exactly what is starting to happen. Let's take, let's go with Cabernet. And as you know, through the last 15, 20 years, winemakers have gotten their Cabernet, at least on the West Coast, riper and riper and riper. And that comes along with some delicious alcohol and some lush fruit flavors. And people say, oh, that's better. I like that better. And they go to a certain point where suddenly it's so ripe that it just tastes like a generic red wine. And it's lost its, I hate this term, but cabernet And Is that a word, cabernet You know, it 
has meaning, don't you think? You're an editor, Sarah. <laughs> it would never I get guess, through I the copy you, department. Well, I guess you could get away with it, <laughs> You're creating your own words. Cabernetus. Uh, Cabernetus. Okay. And, and so, but you put that wine in a professional competition, and those judges are very likely not to give it a high gold medal, even if it tastes delicious to many people. And maybe this is a problem. Okay, so we I'm, just witnessed the Olympics, okay? Right. And there were some gymnasts who did some maneuvers that had never been done before. So they're not in that realm of consciousness of the judges that normally exists. You know, it's outside the lines. So they go outside the lines. The crowd goes crazy. Right. People say, it's so remarkable. Never been done before. Are we going to mark them down for that? For being extraordinary? For rising above everybody else? I'm just, I'm just, That's a great I'm question. I'm just throwing out, yeah. you know, this is a, as a rhetorical question, you know? Or they do it with such spirit and heart that it's a gorgeous thing to watch, but they might have stepped on the line. Or maybe our judging doesn't take into consideration deliciousness enough. Yeah. So what I'm saying is this, is that as we get better and better at making wine and we're able to squeeze some new nuances out of the grapes that we never were able to squeeze out before, shall we hold that wine to the old and lower standard? Or do we raise the bar and say, now this is what a great Cabernet is? I have heard that conversation, maybe you want to call it argument. In fact, at our last competition this year, I watched a panel have that very argument about some wines. And there was a master of wine on the panel who was sticking to the letter of the law about what elements that wine had, did not have. And this was wine after wine, by the way. And there were two other people on the panel who were responsible for choosing wines for a wide population. And they were arguing things like, people would love this wine. This is a gold medal wine. Well, you, you said something very important, which is they were sticking to the letter of the law. And that's exactly the problem. And everybody get this. There's no law. It doesn't exist. It's a bunch of people who oftentimes are snobby and pretentious telling us that what a wine has to be for us to like it. And I say, baloney. That's it. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm calling BS right now. You can do that. It's total yeah. BS because I'm not going to sit and, you know what, for years, people, this is where I get on my Pinot rant now. For years, <laughs> people have told me that I have to love Pinot Noir. No, I don't. I don't like it. You know, once in a while, there are Pinots that I come across that I think are really, really terrific. Don't get me wrong. But for the most part, it's not a varietal that I like. So don't tell me I have to like it because I don't have to. And for those of you who are stuck drinking Pinot because there's you have a partner who is in love with Pinot and thinks that you have to drink it too, no, you don't. You could drink whatever you want. Drink White Zin for all I care. If you love it, drink it. I'm sorry, Sarah. I'm getting off my pedestal now. <laughs> I, I'm with you all the You've way on that one. Like I've that. never seen you rant like that. Um, you, you rant on occasion. But I will add something to that comment you just made. Okay. And that is that I think some of that, and I'm doing air quotes here, law that we use for wine comes from old world snobbishness. There are a lot of experts in the field who have studied wine based on old world models, Bordeaux and Burgundy, and they thumb their noses a little bit at kind of the flamboyance that we go out Well, the good with. news is, yeah. is that the, by now, most of those old world people should be dead. <laughs> 
I don't, I'm not wishing death on anybody. I'm just saying, you know, the old world is exactly that. The old world. The old All right, world. we're going to be back. We're talking about what makes a wine good. Sounds like an easy question. As you can tell by the way that Sarah and I are struggling with this, that it's not an easy question at all. But we are going to liberate you by the end of the show. I promise you that. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. You are listening to America's number one wine radio show, Grape Encounters with David Wilson. Welcome back to Grape Encounters, where we like to think of every wine country as home. However, our studios are located in the very friendly town of Atascadero, California, where fine wine can be found in every direction, which means you never really need directions to get anywhere you really want to go. I don't know about you, but when I open up a bottle of wine, regardless of what it is, where it came from, how old it is, how much it costs, or any other factor, and it tastes delicious, that's what matters most to me. How about you, Sarah Schneider, wine editor of Sunset Magazine? Are you ready to answer the question, what makes a wine good, or (laughs) shall we just continue to drill down here? I think we need to drill down a little bit more. I, I mean, it's absolutely about that, oh, I'm loving this right now, but... To me, that also has to do with context and setting. When is it in the day? Where are you? It's Okay, so that's so important because you know you get asked the same question that I get asked all the time. Any of us who are in the business or any aspect of the business get asked this question all the time. You know what the question is? You're looking What's at me. your favorite one? That's it. <laughs> I knew you were going to say the that. question. What's your favorite one? I hate that question. I hate that question too. <laughs> It, it, because, it, it, you know what, if I had a favorite wine, I would just have a room full of that wine, and that'd be the end of it. You know, I have people that come into the wine bar, the Grape Encounters Emporium. They come in and drink the same glass of wine over and over and over <laughs> and over again. I'm sorry. And, and then mm. they take a bottle home with them. I really, I'm telling you the truth. I have one person who comes in almost every other day, orders a glass or two of that wine, and then buys a bottle and takes it home. <laughs> You know, know, okay, I completely understand that. Personally, I'm a soul who hates change, who loves comfort zones, all of that. So I get it. But that would be so boring. In fact, if you ask me right now what my favorite wine is, I would say it's the one we're sipping right here in the studio. By the way, we are (laughs) sipping a wine here in the studio. Isn't that nice Mm -hmm. that we can actually do that? This is a Gloria Ferrer. It is. Brut Rosé. This is delicious. It's, it's pink. It's a gorgeous wine. Oh, this is yeah. so good. California made. It is made a method champenois. Yep. It's the and, expensive method. And it is really, really totally delicious. And I must say, we are not even halfway through the show really right now, but we're more than halfway through the bottle. <laughs> Although we have a lot in our glass. I, I will say that. We do. We do. Champagne, by the way, is something that I think is really part of this conversation because champagne and bubbly was always for special occasions. And now more and more and more and more people are starting to realize that they can have champagne or they can have wine or they can have both. At any time, in any day. Exactly. And with the whole meal, 
It doesn't have to be that little thing that you share a bottle of champagne before the meal and then you sit down with a bottle of Cabernet. You can drink that bubbly through the whole meal. And I think that has to do with this question you've thrown out on the table, what makes a wine good. I think people are finally realizing and loving the fact that sparkling wine is really terrific wine, not just a celebration beverage. Yeah. And you, and you kind of got to think about bubbly the same way that you think about water. Like, for instance, <laughs> we just grabbed some water at the break and had to decide between sparkling and still, which, by the way, has been a question that's asked in restaurants in Europe forever. You know, we don't do that so much here in the U.S., but sparkling water is as, as important to a meal as anything else. And so, you know, it's really just the difference between bubbles and no bubbles to some degree, right? Right, right. To some degree. Yeah, and then this adds whole new layers because, you know, that second fermentation and then it sat in the on the lees in the bottle for years. This is a late disgorged wine. So it has this yeastiness from all of those smells. When you poured cells. this one, well, it was the first thing I said. You I, said yeasty. I love the smell of the yeah. yeast. There used oh, yeah. to be this, this brewery, beer brewery. Mm-hmm. A big one that was on a highway that I used to drive past. I used to drive past it quite a lot. And you'd get within about a half a mile of that place and you'd start to smell the hops, Hmm. the hoppiness in the air. And I'll tell you what, that was the most beautiful, wonderful smell. Just like when you're baking bread and you put the yeast in and it starts to, the dough starts to rise and you can smell that yeastiness. It's so delicious smelling, you know, and this was the same way. So, you know, that, and that's part of good. For that's this part line. of good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. See, this is the thing that is maybe the most important part of this exercise. Good is up to you. And the most important thing we can teach you as wine educators, this is just my opinion, Sarah, because you're going to maybe disagree with me here. The most important thing I can teach you is to identify the characteristics that you like so that you can find those characteristics in other wines and go out there and explore and have this wonderful time bopping about from wine to wine. And chances are you're going to get on to that third or fourth or fifth or twelfth or one hundredth bottle, and it's going to have all those characteristics that you love in it plus another one or another two. And now you can add those to your palate of colors that you like in a wine. And then it just gets really exciting after that to be able to identify those things. You don't have to be able to explain them. You don't have to associate them with anything else. As long as you know what you love and you know and learn how to find it in the next wines that you will try, you're going to be a happy little camper. Then you're off on your own explanation, exploration. Yes. I really, really like what you just said. And I think it has an element because it, it, I get squirmy when it's so free form that nobody even needs any information from the likes of you and, and me. You mean that not, they, they not would be just able to do I'm, without us? Not just that I'm worried about my job, but... I love the idea, which you just said, that our job is to just maybe identify what that was that you liked, put a, put a word to it. And I've had that happen so often when people are responding to a wine, they just it's delicious, and that's fine. That's all they need to know. But they want to know why they're liking it. And if you put a little bit of language to it, then they can do exactly what you just described okay. and go out and apply that to their next class. Okay, but I'm going to throw an analogy that I'm hoping you never thought of before, okay? Because if I can stump Sarah, I've done something (laughs) very special. You know you stump me all the time. No, I don't. And, you know, you are, in my book, 
with the most approachable wine person and sensible wine person that I know. Oh, Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, you are. That's why you're on the show. You know how many people would like to have your job, Sarah? <laughs> Well, uh, pretty much all of them out there. I bet you know, how many people on. are jealous of you because oh, well. you're on this show. Well, exactly none. But uh, no. All right, you wear glasses. I right? do. I do. And very sexy with the glasses. Oh, okay, oh, everybody. Thank you. Everybody knows that. And I wear contacts. You can't tell, but I wear contacts. Okay. So you and I have one thing in common: not bad vision. We both go to an optometrist, right? That's correct. So what happens when you sit in the optometrist chair? You sit in the chair, and he puts that device in front of you. And even with all the modern technology today, they still have that device where he's turning knobs and he's flipping lenses. And better, which is better, A or B, one or two. That's what the optometrist does. And they're constantly, <laughs> and I always, when they, I go through that exercise, I'm like, how do they do that? What are they doing? How are they narrowing it down? And then taking that feedback, which is very subjective, by the way. I mean, how many times has the optometrist said to you, Number one or number two? And, and I'm not sure which one. I'm not sure. Uh, often. And you feel yeah. like you're failing, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, do it again. I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> Maybe it's what? No, it's two. I, you know what? Wine's the same way. <laughs> and what we're doing, hopefully, is we're having you compare one and two and telling us which one allows you to see better, which one tastes better. And I don't like the term better, but, you know, it's more to your preference. Preference is a, an important Because yeah. better term. is a word I don't yeah. like to use in conjunction with wine. Be and also uh, related to that is that everybody has different taste perception. And right. so you might be actually picking up a completely different thing than your partner. Exactly. So anyway... I think of our job as being optometrists of the palate. <laughs> you did stump me on that one. That's because what I do when I sit down with people who are really trying to, I, you know, zero in on what it is that they love and why they love it, you know, it's really a trial and error thing that we have to do, that you're going to try this. What do you like about, what is it that you think you like about it? Oh, it tastes sweet to you. But there's no sugar in it, so it must be the fruit. Right. You know, that flavor of fruit that you're getting that sometimes fools us into believing that there's sugar in the wine, but there isn't. Things like that. And we're comparing your reaction from one wine to the next to the next. And, you know, chances are if we could lay 10 wines out in front of you and have you react to those 10 wines, very different wines, I bet you, you or I, Sarah, could go to our extensive wine collection and pull a <laughs> bottle that's exactly right for them. I'll bet we could. I'll bet we could. And you're talking about differences and preferences, not better and worse. Because we are optometrists of the palate. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, you know what? G got one segment left. So we're going to have to batten down the hatches here and really drive this baby home. I think we've made progress, though, Sarah. Progress. I'm comfortable. All right. I think you're going to be able to go out into that great, big, wonderful world and, you know, feel comfortable after this. <laughs> okay. All right. We're going to be back with more Grape Encounters. So stay with us. What makes a wine good? We're trying to answer that question now. At Grape Encounters, we do not have much patience for pretentiousness. However, if you're willing to share that fancy bottle of wine with us, we'll try and put up with a little snobbery. At least until the bottle is empty. Did you know that Grape Encounters has one of the country's highest rated wine bars in America? We'd love to have you visit us in person. Find out more at GrapeEncounters.com. 
Your Grape Encounter continues with David Wilson. All you got to do is want it bad enough. You might be surprised. David Wilson here with Grape Encounters Radio and so glad to have on for the entire show today. Sarah Schneider, wine editor of Sunset Magazine. And I wanted to say sidekick, but today co-host of Grape Encounters Radio. I'm honored. On for the entire time. We took on a real challenge today. This is a tough question that you've put on the table. Have you ever done anything on this subject in Sunset? You know, I haven't. It would be fascinating. You're going to steal this idea, aren't you? You know, I just might. You should, huh? (laughs) I just might. I can see that. On the cover of Sunset Magazine, (laughs) what makes a wine good? And then the subhead says, you might just be surprised. Ooh. Yeah. Ah, That's a teaser of a cover line. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I think we agree on one thing for sure. And we've agreed on it since the first minute of this show, which is what makes a wine good is what you think of it. You know, that's ultimately is the most important thing. Absolutely. But are there other things that we're missing that make a wine good? Because I think that there are elements that I I feel like they should be in there. Well, you know, I'm going to have to just slip back to some of the technicalities that can actually make a wine bad, because I think there are things, there are flaws in wines that will make it so you really don't like it. So it's related to whether you like okay, it or not. So for instance, but for instance, I don't think there should be any strange bacteria growing in that wine. I think it should be clean. And no insects it, doing the backstroke either. You know, a few insects are okay. But but yeah. then it comes down to defining strange bacteria because you wouldn't call Botrytis cinerea a bad bacteria, would you? Well, you have me there. You've you've got the noble rot and in I in do not have the noble <laughs> rot. I took <laughs> penicillin <laughs> for six weeks. Okay. And in the right wine, that can be a beautiful thing for a dessert wine, a, a sweet late harvest So we're wine. talking about a bacteria that is common, especially in like wines like Riesling's, where you get, how do you describe it? It actually sucks some of the water content out of the grapes, adds a certain flavor to the grapes that is especially good in super it sweet wines. Creates a honeyed character yes, that's exactly. just beautiful in a late harvest white Bordeaux. And you can taste it instantly. But we know how to make clean wines now, and I don't think there's much excuse for making a wine that isn't clean. There are cellars that have Britannomyces in them, and that creates a farminess or a Band-Aid type quality in the wine. And but we I do that on purpose, think too, that, though. Well, in beer, we add Britannomyces. Yeah. But in wine, I know that those old world cellars sometimes prize their bread and they kind of like it in the finished wine, but it's a flaw. And so I kind of think that makes a less good wine. See, I'm just going to throw this out there. I don't necessarily agree. And here's why. You know, when I go and visit old cities like cities in Europe and you go into like that 500, 700 year old church where, you know, there's a certain smell in there that comes from just being in existence for that long. My grandparents used to smell that way, but they weren't quite that old. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying? There's that smell, that oldness. You once described a wine as tasting like an old trunk. Hmm. And you know, that smell is the same. It's that oldness. And I've heard people say that here in the States that we tend to sometimes be too antiseptic in the way that we do things and, you know, lose some of that bit of mother nature that distinguishes old from new. Okay. You've walked me back and I'm okay with that. We're coming back to do you like it or not in a way. You're a bit of a bookworm, aren't you? Oh, I am. Okay. Don't you love walking into an old library. (laughs) Don't you? I do. Don't you love that smell? I I do love that smell. Yeah. 
My grandparents are in yeah. there. But I don't necessarily <laughs> – yeah. in, in the library. Yeah. I don't necessarily want it in my wine. Okay. That's um, fair enough. All right. So we just have a couple minutes left, Sarah. Okay. So what else makes a wine bad? I think a wine could be bad if it's made from grapes that aren't interesting at all. That Okay. And that's possibly because they're from a vineyard that has been allowed to grow 10 tons an acre instead of the three that it should. And so it's nondescript, boring wine. Okay. How about this one? Chemistry. You know, this is one that really, I think you have to pay close attention to because let me just compare the difference between a Coca-Cola and a Diet Coke. I happen to love the taste of Coca-Cola or Pepsi for that matter. You know, they taste good. Diet drinks have that chemical element to them. And yes, at least in the moment, you think you're doing yourself a favor by consuming, you know, these saccharine kinds of sugar substitutes. But when you really stop and you think about it, you go, oh, this tastes nothing like the real deal. And we add so many chemicals to mass-produced, low-priced brands. And you may not notice it at first, but if you sit back and you think about it for a second, you'll notice it. Agreed? I do agree with that. But it sounds to me like you're sort of creeping into there are better wines and worse wines, or good wines and, and less good wines. No, I'm just saying that, you know what, there is the line between beverage and fine wine. Oh, there you go. And wine as a beverage, to me, is kind of like that diet soda. It's got a lot of stuff going on in there that, you know, that isn't really all that wonderful. And if all you're wanting is something to drink at a tailgate party or a backyard barbecue that, you know, you're going to leave half the glass sitting next to the barbecue, you know, while you're grilling the steaks and it's going to get warm and you're going to throw it out, then you don't need expensive wine for that. And, you know, you can just accept it for what it is. We don't complain when we go to the stadium and all they're pouring is a... $10 wine because we're just happy to have wine there. Right. But it's different when you're sitting down with friends and you really want to get into a bottle of wine because you're going to pay attention. I agree. And that comes back to context being a big part of what's good in a wine. And I agree with you about the chemical content. There are some scary things added to wine and it makes it taste less like wine, I would say. Yeah. So we got to wrap it up, Sarah, but could we agree on this? That wines that are made with conscientiousness, with quality, with attention to detail, with good ingredients to begin with, with tender, loving care are likely to be good wines. But in the final analysis, what does matter the most is that you love that product that was created. I agree with every word of that. That's it? That's it. Wow. We're going to end on that note, Sarah. Okay. All right. Hey, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters for this week, you know, this discussion's far from over. There's a lot more to talk about. I think that some of the things I've probably said are a little nonsensical, but I want to make the point that you don't have to be apologetic about your preferences in wine. If you love it, by all means, enjoy it, drink it, buy it. Don't let anybody tell you that you have to drink something else or that your preferences are inappropriate. I couldn't have said that better myself. In the meantime, if you listen to Sarah and I enough, we're going to point you in the direction of some other things that you're going to love perhaps even more than us that's going to do it for grape encounters this week sarah thanks a whole show with you hey it was good to be back all right we're going to be back next week with our regular editions of sipping with sarah today's grape encounter may be over but look at the bright side now you get to put everything you learned today into practice and don't forget to join our grape encounters radio facebook group page where incredibly fun people just like you share ideas, and frequently get together to share a bottle as well. 